Greetings, ladies and mentalgents, and welcome to the latest chapter of Oz Magica, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links are down below, and please like, comment, and subscribe like any good minion of the algorithm would do. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. I'd just quickly like to thank my tier 5 channel members and patrons. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Sergeant Boomer, and Cat Crab Lobster. Again, thank you very much. Chapter 31 I'm going to be completely honest here. I have absolutely no idea what I should do in this situation. Judging by all the screaming and everyone running upstairs. Some going downstairs through a trapdoor I hadn't noticed. Whatever else this guy is, he's most certainly trouble. Sorry about that, everyone. The monster is a bit stronger than I expected. Don't worry, since this was caused by me, my funds will be used to repair it. Now, if you all excuse me. His voice was like gravel, which was appropriate, I guess. And his body was almost... Uh, I don't really want to say his body was made of rock, because it moved much more smoothly than a stiff piece of earth. For a second, I wanted to go up to him. Just for a second, though. I, uh, I don't know where that came from. Weird, and, uh, just like that, he leapt back up through the hole he made, almost silently. And everybody went back to what they were doing and stopped screaming. What? Hey, uh, Barak, um, what was that normal? The bast looks a little surprised that I went back to talking to him. Around here, yes, people will fall into buildings all the time, but uh, most end up hospitalized. We're lucky the monster hadn't crashed all the way out there. Hospitalized, then. Why the hell is that guy okay, then? His face twitches before relaxing. Oh, him, that's the Lord. He's kind of uh, peculiar. Uh, not too many people have an Earth affinity after all. Ah, that. He turns away from me to polish some glasses and brush away some of the dust that ended up on his side of the bar. Peculiar, I mean, uh, I get that thing about the affinity, but his status literally said that he is a cannibal. I whisper to myself. Suddenly, I find a scaled hand on my mouth, grasping it firmly shut. I turn towards the left and find one of those scaly people looking over me. In fact, it was the exact same one I saw in the corner, and somehow it had snuck up on me without me hearing them, and also without triggering my detection ability. Dang, they're good. That's just a rumor. Now, I'd prefer it if you didn't badmouth the only person keeping this place running. The apparently feminine lizard says as she released my mouth. But I can literally see it. She doesn't move from the spot and her scaled ridges seem to narrow. Look, I don't care if you're a reader. It's best not to mention it. Wait, she knows. You know. Of course I do. Not many people don't. He keeps to criminals though, so we don't necessarily care. You don't care. He literally... I realized I raised my voice, and the lizard literally looking at me like she wants to murder me. So I bring my voice down. Eats people. Yes, he does. The more it occurs, though, the less mad he gets. And so no one round here wants to make him mad. So you all just let him? Aren't there any laws against it, or maybe just common decency to not do it? Yes, people of course care about this particular aspect. But what are we going to do about it? For the last time a reader came around, 
His level was higher than anyone else around that time. He can't even leave without the Lord knowing through his circle of informants. Since he keeps to criminals, though, we just stay silent about it. By the way, what is his level now? Seemed to be 102. Dear Salah, that's almost twice as fast as usual. He was 99 last month. Wait, that doesn't seem right to me. Didn't I get to something like level 50 within two weeks? Then again, I had that weird title affecting me, and I was stuck in monster country, apparently. She had slung a drink back while I was thinking about what to say next. Should we be concerned that he got thrown back here this far from the wall? She almost chokes on a drink, but manages to swallow it down. She sets the glass on the table, glowing brightly before turning back towards me. I didn't ask to be your conversation partner, you know. I get ya, but if you're a local... She seems to almost stare into my eyes before sighing. Alright, so judging by how he wasn't cracked or nicked, it's probably nothing too bad. If it didn't magic damage though, I couldn't tell. Wait, monsters can use magic? Some do, not a lot, considering that most can't really develop their wisdom all that easily. Ah, I guess that makes sense, except the question for why is it that that? I doubt someone like her would know that sort of thing, though. My thoughts are disrupted when she takes my drink from my hand and downs it. Hey, who's gonna drink that? She looks back at me, full scoffing. Considerate payment for wasting my time, as well as getting some advice. With that, she turns away from me, gets off the stool, and almost lazily heads back to the corner that she was in, tail sliding along behind her. Damn it, now I actually need to know what she's about. Analyze. Name, Kamiya Gajka, raced Cobalt Pagona, a fin- Notice, due to interference, further analysis can be done at this time. Wait, what? You can block that kind of thing? Actually, kind of makes sense now. If there's a way to look at somebody's status, of course, there'd be some kind of- da Damn. I think she's noticed, wait. She winked. Okay, so it's not that- Kamiya. I wouldn't be doing that if I were you. Not too many people like prying eyes. I have never felt more scared or impressed in my life. There's a bloody chat function. Why isn't everybody using it? Wait, doesn't this count as mental manipulation or something? Why didn't my resistance kick in? Questions for another time, I suppose. Wait, we're in a town now. Couldn't I just head to a church? Then again, there seems to be a big battle going on, so... I doubt they would be sane to run through the streets while it's going on. Maybe I should help. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I get rid of the problem, I help the eyes in the town, and the mayor, lord, whoever, or whatever his title is, will not see me as somewhat bad. The church will have actual priests or something in there, so I can learn how to get in touch with their gods. I mean, magic exists, and there are titles like sinner, so I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume that gods exist here, even if they might just be actual people and not true ones. They might have something that could help me. All right, River Coin. Yeah, that's how I'll do most binary decisions anyhow. Plus, if my luck stat works like I think, then maybe it actually would give me the best outcome for me. However, my thoughts are interrupted as a boulder is shoved in front of my eyes onto the table. Soup for ya. Now that'll be twelve copper. Copper? Crap. How the hell am I going to avoid looking... Uh... Wait. 
Didn't Ma Wall pay for food? That was only for breakfasts. Anything else, including alcohol, costs extra. Oh, fecking cast it does. So, let's see what I've got in my little side patch here. I got gold pieces from the quest up. Don't really think pushing them over is a good idea. So, I should probably find something else. Ah, here we go. Some of the money I made at vending for Marwell. Let's see, a couple copper and two silver. Nice, just enough. I fork over what is needed and digging into the, uh, huh. The soup tastes almost nostalgic. I look down closely at it to find something I hadn't seen in a while. It's that one dish, minestrone. When was the last time I had Italian anyway? Compliments to the chef. The bast kind of looks off after I said that, but nods. I'll tell her. And with that, he turns away from me and starts helping out some of the other patrons. Now, I guess since I'm alone with my thoughts, I'd best think about what I should do. All right, so it's not exactly head of tails, considering the coins I have are the same on both sides. Just an engraved circle with some chicken scratch all along the sides. How am I going to decide which side is heads or tails? I could use one of the knives that's lying around at the bar. Yeah, it's as good as any. Just a quick X on one side and I'm good to go. Well, nothing better to do than flip. Okay, so heads I stay, tails I go. Heads is a mark, it's decided. Then, with a quick flash of golden light, because of course I'm going to use the gold coins for this, I catch it and flip it, covering the results with my hand, while I consider if I'm doing the right thing by leaving this decision to random chance. Well, my hand's off of it, and that's the result. Well, I guess I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my day. End of chapter. Chapter 32 what does time sync actually mean? There are, of course, many different iterations and explanations behind those two words. Some take it to form the literal meaning, where some mages have the capacity for chronomancers of the highest level and job classifications to even perform the spell to sync time into a specific area permanently. Meanwhile, others believe that it is a simple act of doing something for so long that it was boring. A literal time waster that was meant to be something to do while you waited for something else to happen. However, this wasn't what it meant to Credence. He took in the entirety different direction of the word, something to be proud of. To say he sunk time to hone his repertoire of skills, that the things he came up with, built and manipulated, weren't just made or used with pure skills, it was pure talent. Truth be told, Turning off skills weren't really a thing most people knew about to begin with. In essence, it was the lost art that seemed to be lost on purpose. No one in the modern day ever talked about doing it, because the concept was so alien to their minds. Skills weren't things that were additional to them. They were them. They represented the culmination of the being and their effort in life. And to actually physically repress it so that they longer were able to use them, it was almost undeniably an unspoken sin, if they even realized that it could be done. Those who were able to turn them off, however, weren't labeled with the title that corresponds to it, though. It was simply an addition of something to make life easier in all aspects, to be able to work towards something that anyone could physically see. 
If someone wanted to be a carpenter, they could forgo the class designation. No one needs to manually control each aspect of the body to swing an axe or keep the muscles at an acceptable level to carry those thick logs. But no one would say no to having something maintain those muscles and the memory of those actions for you. Those aspects wouldn't even pop into their minds because of the sole singular fact that it allowed someone to see what they were lacking to actually do the job properly, which is something that can't be overstated enough. Of course, there were things that couldn't ever be gotten rid of simply because they were part of their being. No one couldn't just simply put an affinity into the back of their mind and magically put their body back into a state before it could have been affected by it. Affinities were a part of their makeup, and they had been implemented onto the world, and they would long after. This is, of course, the same occurrence with stats. They were as much a part of the body as anything, and only really served as an actual metric with how the entity would stack up with any other. It only ever helped gain more through divine influence or actual hard work. This, of course, was the crux of the problem for him currently, as he tried to remember what exactly had happened to have made him just stuck halfway through a wall. Credence had thought of every eventuality when he came to confront someone. Beldor! He thought he knew about the type of people he usually employed. He knew about the secret second affinity. He had a crash course and what type of skills that man relied on. However, even with knowing all of that, he had a bit of a disadvantage that he had to make up for. For one thing, Credence wasn't born with any natural affinities, nor was he able to come across any that weren't outright harmful to him. Most affinities around these parts mainly upheld the values of nature, and Credence wasn't really looking to become part of the desert. Even if he was desperate enough to take the sand affinity, another thing he had to make up for was the pure level disparity and stat distribution. Credence hadn't resided in the city of Gulgan for a while, and his news wasn't all that up to date. The last time he had gotten information about Faldor was when the last employed at the tower, and that had been a couple of years ago. Back then, he had just decided that working hard in the desert and fighting monsters of desolation would help his growth. From what he had recalled way back when, Faldor had a level of around 67. Coupled with the different species' original stat distribution, and he was basically being set up for a one-two punch to the grave. With as much time as he'd been gone, he would have had to have developed some levels from eating, so Credence guessed that he was around level 80 and to the low level 90 range. So to be able to even have a chance of defeating him in combat class, he would have to be level 100. Unfortunately, he hadn't been able to get a level 100 milestone yet, but he was hoping in the battle some experience would be imparted onto him, and he'd be able to make a comeback. From what he remembered, the pool of all 100 milestones was a fair bit larger than the stat milestones were, but he really wouldn't worry about it too much. Level 100 was usually the most important milestone, simply because it allowed one to pick a skill that one could get with the stats that I had at the time. All increments of 100 were usually like that. There was, however, one other glaring concern. When he spent some time recovering from researching the tower and burning the documents he'd rather not fall into the wrong hands, he had come across a log within the manager's safe. 
that contained a list of everything that went into the tower and came out. Some of the things that it was most concerned about were the monsters that had been checked out and never got checked back in. He wasn't entirely sure if Valdor had the monster tamer or not, and even if he did, most monsters didn't exactly listen to the masters for long. He was fairly certain that his mechanical creations he'd set up to march towards the wall would have taken care of any sight threat, like misguided guards or those that were stationed along the tower. He wasn't sure if they could take care of any serious monster threat that they had cooked up, way back when. So, going into the town, he had three main objectives. The first one was to sneak inside while the guards were being reassembled. He had some basic light inscriptions on his pack that would let others not see him easily. However, the real problem was the gates. He couldn't exactly open them without anyone noticing that the crank was moving without anyone touching it. He had, of course, planned on perhaps knocking out those guards and had been stationed there, but it seemed that Fortuna had been gazing on his predicament that day and decided otherwise. He'd been able to spot the caravan that was kicking up dust rather fast as he got closer to the settlement and sneaked along through the open western gate to take care of the next objective. This one was to figure out where exactly the nearest church would be. Of course, Credence wasn't ever really what anyone would call a religious man, but he figured it would be better safe than sorry to pray there and see if any gods would be willing to give advice or perhaps actual aid through priests. However, his aching head and cracked back reminded him why that didn't exactly turn out all that well. Despite honing his skills, he had never really been able to figure out how enchanters went about enchanting their states in paper. Of course, he was able to buy some high-quality paper to actually use for the light magic that he had in mind, but no one would be willing to sell anything regarding magic detection. He asked around, but all that ever got him in the desert was a scoff, and a tip-off to the local town guards. The only reason he had even thought of going in was because he thought that the teacher he had paid for actually did her job. He only ever asked how to carve the one specific action for evading magic detection, and she had compiled some kind of runic incorporation, but uh, it didn't seem to work. He hated himself for that, whether he got tricked or if he wasn't paying attention, he didn't know. Of course, later on, with a clear head, he would have probably realized that he'd spent too much time paying attention to her ears and tail, and not enough attention to what she had been saying. But he would never admit that to himself that he felt that way. Either way, the result was exact same. Valder was able to detect him within the city, and Credence couldn't have known about it until the stone behemoth had punched him square in the jaw. This, of course, brings Credence back to the present, and as to why he was stuck inside a wall with something blurry rapidly moving towards him from across the other side of the street. He was currently shifted into the third objective that he had, far before he'd even accomplished his second. For a second, Credence was almost afraid, even with his rapidly returning vision and the speed in which Faldo kicked up the cobblestone, he didn't know exactly how he could escape this. It also did not help his decision-making all that much. When he noticed that Faldo's eyes seemed to be glowing red with a power that did not belong to his class. At least, according to Credison's memories of it. 
So, with Falvo seemingly intending on tackling him through the building to put him out of commission and likely eat him as of disturbing the peace, he got out of the indent he made, planted his feet, and dug into his pockets, bringing his arm up and covering up his metal gauntlet that lay upon it. With some spare crystal in his pocket, he rocked his fist as hard as he could upwards to delay the third objective, confronting Faldo. His fist made contact with the charging stone Goliath, but instead of cracking his head clean off, Credence just seemed to launch Faldo up into the air with a crack. Credence, wanting to do something more than simply launching the man into the air, took some spare crystals and stomped on it, further releasing energy into his boots. However, Instead of a buzzing sound, something within his shoes seemed to hiss in anticipation. Crouching down, he pushed off the ground, the pistons within his shoes aiding his jump as he reached heights he couldn't have dreamt of years ago. However, his eyes weren't on the things moving around him. They were, instead, tracking down his steadily slowing down target. Valdor seemed to gather his wits about him again as he recovered from the jaw-breaking strength of Credence's gauntlet strike. However, it seemed like it was all too slow pace that recovered, for as soon as he realized that Credence was in front of him again, did he once again hit him. However, instead of striking out with his fist, he seemed to wheel around with a piston-powered kick to the chest, which sent Faldor streaming across the sky, seeming to crash straight through a couple buildings. At that, Credence paused sending prayers to any people who hadn't been caught up in the fight. At this point in time, it's when the upward momentum ceased to be, and thus began a downward descent. At this, Gredon slightly panicked. He hadn't exactly been expecting a fight in the air. At most, he thought it would be a simple matter of fisticuffs until he inevitably had beaten that monster down into his own grave. Not something like this. So, as he headed straight down, he spotted something slightly below him and to the left. He had apparently been pushed into the side of the castle, overlooking all the city down below. That was Baldur's seat of power, and it also had a claim of having one of the tallest towers within it. And it was approaching fast. So, with a quick wit, and as the wind whipped past his face, he used up the final charge within his boots, and rocketed towards the rapidly approaching roof of the tower, and missed. He had overshot, and instead of landing on the top portion of the roof to somewhat break his fall, he had managed to aim himself off and to the side of it. Thinking quickly, he maneuvered his body and tried to reach for some other mason work and slow down his descent. His gauntlets did indeed claw their way into the side of the tower, and his idea seemed to work. His claws struck with the stone that they seemed to also somewhat held by it. As he raced around the side of the tower, going around, his descent seeming to slow quite a bit. Trying not to develop motion sickness, he tried to find any semblance of the church. Now that he'd wasted any magical items he could use up, whatever method Valdor had found him by wouldn't work a second time. However, this is also a double-edged sword. When he put too much power into one of his gauntlet fists at once, he could no longer use anything to make a charge, and there wasn't much left to even charge the other one for any longer than a couple seconds. His tools were almost used up entirely, and he needed something that he had never received before, a miracle. So, as he circled the tower from on high, he spotted the church, 
its massive stonework and steepled rises seeming to reach towards him from further off east into the city. Readying himself, once he saw that there was little tower left, and approaching the roof at a dizzying sideways speed, he ripped his claw out. His running didn't exactly catch up to his real speed until his feet rolled a bit on the shingle, and he was off, running along the roof. He would not have much time before Faldor recovered from his impromptu flight. So looking for an easy way down, he spotted a gutter leading down. So sliding off the roof, he clung to the side of the drainpipe and slid down. Thankfully, the two-story drop hadn't managed to damage anything on Credence's person, or even himself. So jumping the last five feet, he ran down the side of the paths and anyways, hoping to use the cover of darkness to hide himself and headed eastwards towards the church. His feet pounded the pavement as he rushed from shadow to shadow. He could hear the far-off sounds of destruction towards the eastern wall, as well as some happenings northwards. It could have been some of his constructs, but he assumed that it was the direction that he'd struck Valdor. That meant that he was highly furious, and most likely not in his right mind. Good, mused Credence, if he's angry, he's not thinking, and he'll only be able to act upon his berserker's instincts. Perfect. He was through any light-stricken street, dodging haphazard piled barrels and carts that had been left out in the open. And then, when he turned the corner, he saw it, the spires seeming to drip down from the sky as they peeked over the rooftops. At first, he stumbled a bit over some loose cobble at the exact moment. He realized how much he'd have to do to even pray. So much wasted gold's gonna go down this river, he thought. Stepping silently, he approached the story-high double doors and checked if it was locked. Thankfully, no one had locked it in the ensuing chaos. That didn't mean that nobody was in it, however, as when he opened, it was a testament to. There was standing in front of him was what he assumed was a Dwem priest. If you are here for the service, it ended thirty minutes ago. Confused, he looked around before noticing the tuft of black hair below him. Downwards, there seemed to be a Dwem woman that was the source of the blatant monotone, which meant utterly going against her smiling face. Credence shook his head. No, I'm just here to pray for guidance in these trying times. The priest seemed to look at him for an awful long time probably wondering why someone wearing rags and sporting around somewhat ruined armor was walking through the city. All right, I'll take you to the chamber. Do you have the customary cast? Credence nodded towards the questioning tone. At this, the Dwemer reached into her ropes to pull out what looked like a bunch of papers with a wing. Which god are you trying to reach? She asked as she scanned through her manuscript. Any that would have me. At this, she stopped and glanced upwards towards him, seemingly angry. That costs extra, extra. Last time I was here, it was a basic cost. At this, the petite woman rolled her eyes. He must not have heard recently, then. Duroc's empire seems to be expanding, so most gods need faith to rebalance what he's using in excess. Because of that, this costs basically fifty gold now. Credence cursed under his breath. He knew not keeping in touch with worldly affairs would cost him in the long run. Now, his entire hoard of gold would be lost just to see if someone was able to help him. All right, I'm sorry I was angry. Here. 
He tugged off the pouch on his side and threw it towards the woman, who caught it deftly. Her smile seemed to widen a tad bit before shrinking. Follow me, then. And with that, she turned and walked away down the hall. Credence hadn't been inside the church for a long time, so the changes were kind of apparent once he actually stepped across the threshold of the door. Where before the marble tiles lined the floor and dragon glass infused into the ceiling two stories up to create etchings of historical importance, now had wooden scaffolding decorating the entire interior as many of the same drawings and sketches had been taken down and laid on the floor. Credence had made no comment about his suspicions. It could only ever mean one thing. If a church was redecorating, and most often times, it didn't mean anything good. So, Credence queried, who's the new god? The Dwem looked behind her and tilted her head upwards to meet his eyes. Currently, we're under the orders from the Lord to shift Grauscope away from Shishem and towards Belem. Personally, I don't think it's going to last. Credence thought that it was quite curious that she, a priest, would say so. So he asked her one more question. Why is that? Currently, any actual priests and members of a clergy are mostly dead. Some mishap with a crusade against Swalk a couple years back. Not really too sure on the details, but since I'm associated with Grands, I've been brought here to make sure that anything that goes into this building is at least of the same alignment. So Credence summarized that as politics he shouldn't have asked about, and also, if he accidentally says something distasteful about Grands, then he wasn't sure that he would be able to leave this church. As they passed by some corridors, Credence peeked down them to find some people huddled in a corner praying. He offered a silent bidding of good fortune and wished that they had had enough money to pay for a dedicated room before heading onwards. Some doors were open along the side, leading to pulpits where he could view multiple people giving sermons about tenants upheld by their gods. He didn't pay attention to any sermon for long. He feared that if he listened for too long, he'd buy into the spiel about preachers carried out. Finally, the Dwem had turned left at some point down the endless corridor and came across a somewhat opulent door. Do you know the rules about praying? Startled, he looked downwards as she gestured towards the door with her black wing. No, I'm not really much of the churchgoer. She sighed before pushing the door open. Inside was perhaps the fanciest room that Credence had ever beheld. It didn't seem to host any of the renovations that the outside was currently undergoing, so the white marble tile was still was left unblemished. There wasn't a hint of dirt or detritus within the room, and the only things inside of it was a raised altar, a satin pillow, and a bell. The decor of the room was spartan, but the design was simply perfect. It was made up of a domed roof that led all to a skylight, which shined unnaturally bright, given the condition outside. So praying isn't all that much different except for what you do. Instead of just doing it to the air, though, you have to direct it towards the altar. Once you're ready to pray, you ring the bell and start doing it. Once you're done, if any god deems you worthy to answer them, their name will show up upon the altar. The answer that the Dwem gave was perhaps the most straightforward and helpful that Credence had gotten that day. It was the only answer that he received on that day, 
but the statement would still stand if all went according to his plan. Credence walked inside, but was stopped when he felt the leathery wing upon his back. Don't be afraid if no one shows up. Usually it takes a fair amount of time for anyone to respond. They have a pass through so many people after all. He nodded towards her slightly before heading towards the center of the room. He settled down on a pillar and heard the door shut behind him. He calmly breathed in and let it out, getting himself into the mindset of a prayer before he rang the bell and looked towards the altar. I, I need all the help I can get. No one else seems to want to stop Valdo's monstrous ways. And the only way I can atone for this title I have is to take him down. I know that once he's gone, this entire city will be without a lord, but it is something I feel has to be done. To prevent more losses of life, to preserve in the face of barbarity, and to save all those lives he's consumed, either physically or through actions like the Tower. That is the reason I pray. I am not strong enough on my own. Things have not gone according to the plan I have set, and the only way I feel like I can get back on track is if I receive some aid. I'm willing to do anything, just, uh, someone, please help me. Silence fills the room. Credence's voice seems to bounce around the ceiling before training echoes can be heard far off in the skylight. At first, nothing seems to happen. There does not appear to be a list where he can choose who to talk to, nor is there any indication that it had worked at all. Sighing, Credence went on to get up, but then noticed something. The light was dimming. Indeed, the skylight that looked so bright was starting to dim to a dull glow, for not all too long it went out entirely. Darkness filled his senses as his eyes began to make shapes within the dark and his ears began to hear a phantom ringing before. You have activated the ritual of prayer with added help from the local church. Six valid deities detected. Deity 1, Swelk. Deity 2, Telchek. Deity 3, Yawa. Deity 4, Envalda. Deity 5, Pelar. Deity 6, Onda. The voice above the world spoke out, appearing above the altar. End of chapter. Chapter 33 Not of all the deities the list had to spit out, one of them immediately stood out to credence. While others did tempt him with the sheer strangeness, such as Swalk, god of morals and civility, as well as others that were sheer power, like Deltach, god of the wind and storms, there were some that intrigued him. Yawa was the progenitor of all kobolds such as himself and he never really expected her to ever hear a prayer from one such as him, who went against the traditional ways of hunt and earth. Envalda was also another one he didn't expect, as he didn't think he much held many values that a goddess of heroism and strength would like. Bella, of course, didn't really make himself feel any better about what he was doing. He was the god of martyrdom and lost causes after all. This, of course, was both good and bad, as while he could pray to him and gain his personal aid in whatever thing he may need with, it was, of course, all a matter of luck whether or not Pella's dominion would hold sway over his mission. He'd rather not take that chance. The one that seemed really out of place, though, was Onda. 
Why, of all beings that Onda have any interest in how this whole thing went down. Credence thought back to the outcome of his plan, as well as the steps he took leading up to it. Throughout it all, he couldn't find one reason that the god of beasts and wild would want to help him, which seemed, to him at least, trustworthy. Out of everyone else that had been given to him that would be willing to listen to his plight, they all had something in common that was slightly suspicious to him, as he viewed gods to be, in almost all cases he'd heard of, self-grandiose. If it helped them against their rival, then it was perhaps the easiest choice that they could make. But the content of the list he'd been given had hidden value he immediately noticed. All of the gods seemed to be at each other's throats. Involda despised what Panna had done to many that she had shown favor. Be made into a joke. Yawa was against Taldaj, simply because one of his dominions would be put to the test by both of Taldaj's. And to him, getting help from Swalk would be a death sentence. When he was surrounded by priests and the opposite god, out of all of them, none would hold immediate calls to hurt him in the future if he chose Onda. So that's what he did. At first, he didn't know if he had chosen correctly. Where before, while he was walking, he'd just tap on the screen given by the god's voice, and there'd be some kind of confirmation that someone would or wouldn't have heard it. But now, there was just nothing. Then, the screen shattered into motes of light and began swirling around him. He closed his eyes, in fear of what might actually do. Had he chosen wrong? This hadn't happened to him before. But then again, he'd only ever gotten a reply from a god once before and it was just that the screen displaying the god itself ought to answer his query. This was different, stranger than he was used to. Once the light could no longer be seen through his eyelids, he tentatively opened them. There, lying before him, was in the room that he'd come into. Gone were the white walls, floor, and even pillow that he was lying on. The altar had stayed, though, and that was probably the strangest thing about this, as he was surrounded by greenery. Trees seemed to be surrounding him on the horizon, while flowers bloomed around the circular cropping of stone underneath him. He could see a river out of the side, flowing down the hill he'd gotten himself onto. And then, there it was, in front of him. A monolith of earthly proportions, utterly natural to the landscape. It almost had a cliff-like quality to it, if it were not for the steps set into it. And the thing on top. It was a throne of stone and wood, where lying upon it was the most recognizable avatar for the god himself, Onda, staring at him. So I hear you need help with a cannibal. The god's voice seemed to reverberate across the entire of the end cave. Um, yes, the, yes, if, if it isn't too much trouble. Credence's voice seemed to tremble at being in the presence of a god, which was understandable. His aura was seeming to press down upon the mortal, but it was only enough to show the amount of disparity between the two beings. You said you were willing to give anything in exchange for this. The wolf stretched himself out upon his throne and cracked his neck before sitting back down. Credence, not expecting the question, began to rapidly nod. Yes, this is something I've tried for a long time now, and I can't die before I finish it. The wolf seemed to look down upon him before nodding once. Okay, then. 
know that no time will pass while we're here. If that was a concern for you, I have a lot of things I must ask of you. Don't worry, though. It is only two things I ask of you. At this, Credence sparked. Two things for a god was quite a lot for someone like him. But this was only option he had. So he put his spear down and asked the question. What are they? The first is in a manner of help that I am giving you. I am currently sending my chosen towards you. He is uh, new to his station, but still has the power he had from before he was proven to be able to withstand his new station. I want you to watch over him until such a time that he's fully capable as a chosen. Credits gasped. A chosen would guarantee his place in the realm of the living far easier than a temporary power of boon. That added plus, being the part of a priest or acolyte for Onda, would probably not be able to have all that much in terms of battle experience. It shall be done. And the other thing? Onda finally looked Credence in the eye, as his claws seemed to etch something in the stone. My chosen is traveling with an uh, oddity that he's bound himself to for the rest of his foreseeable life. They have... Uh, Something important that belongs to the realm of the gods. It is not an item, but something uh, magical and spiritual in nature. I want you to banish it out of them once you have the materials. The sooner it is out of their body, the better. Credence put the question out of his mind on how the god could have found out about his class. He was a god. It was better just to leave things to omnipotence than any other reason. Banishing was but a hard task to pull off. But he could do it once he got a higher level in the class. I will try and accomplish this as fast as possible. Can I add something onto the nature of the second clause? Onda looks curiously down towards him and motions for him to continue. As I don't exactly know how long it'll take for your chosen to become fit for his station, can we use the second job I have to do as a way for me to not be in debt to you? As I am now, I would have no hope to even accomplish something that could affect the spirit. But I could be able to do it if I hit my next class milestone. Once I finish it, I'll be free from my other duties, as I'd perhaps like to teach my trade to those who can learn it, rather than be stuck in the wilderness with your brethren. Onda doesn't seem to react at first. His movement is all still as it could possibly be, making him out to be a living statue. And then he speaks. Yes, that is agreeable. Once you've accomplished the second task, you'll be free of your servitude to the first, and you'll be out of my debt. So it is, so it shall be. With this, his paw hits the ground, causing all the sounds of wildlife around him to still. Something seems to appear with a shimmer in the air along with the voice of the gods. You have been issued a heavenly mandate containing the following. 1. Protect Onda's chosen until they have grown into their own. 2. Dispel the spiritual effect of Dave. Reminder, breaking the heavenly mandate will label you as a sinner. You may fulfill this mandate once you've accomplished the second task given to you. There floating in front of him was a parchment of the highest quality and calligraphy. Details all along the edges contained gold and platinum while the parchment itself seemed to be made up of leaves. Then, once he had witnessed it in title, it dissolved and flew directly at him, marking his soul. Now do your best with your fight. 
Melon's loyal isn't really going to make it easy. At this, Credence's eyes widened as the world seemed to vanish around him, leaving him in darkness. This was out of Crescent's plan entirely. A loyal was only a non-religious title for a class of acolyte, often only having a person bestowed with it, one step away from becoming a holy warrior. This was entirely bad, but then again, he had been promised a chosen, and he could only hope that they would be battle-ready. Light seemed to stream down again from the skylight, and he found himself back in the marble room, still kneeling down on a pillar. He got up, thoughts raced in his mind following the last line from under. The decree for the church finally made sense to him. If Felder was a loyal, then this was probably his last stage in becoming a holy warrior. In his mind, it only made complete sense for the promotion itself by a goddess who just lost all her priests and other clergy. I just hope that this chosen is battle ready, Credence mumbled under his breath as he raced to get out of the church. Valdo would only be minutes, if not seconds, behind him. His goddess probably whispered into his ear that his quarry had gotten himself into a new found church. He only hoped that he wouldn't be too late in getting out. He kicked down the door and ran for it, his feet seeming to pound against the marble floor. As he spared a glance down the hallway, he was led. If the goddess was actively against him, it wouldn't be long until the clergy would be down his neck. He was only thankful that she had to take more time getting the message to the church members that she didn't directly have access to. As it dashed past the scaffolding and broken pieces of history, he could finally see the door in front of him, the grand entrance into this trapped temple. Where before it seemed to shine with a holy light inviting him to comfort his weary body and listen to his requests. Now it seemed dark, more antagonistic. This building had transformed under the white marble that was part of it, now almost seeming to shift into a glistening obsidian glass. He rammed himself into the door that was two stories tall, opening it with a bang that rang out into the courtyard in front of the church. It also seemed to meet with someone as the ship seemed to fly off down the stairs, landing in front of the statue of Faldo in his prime that had been erected in the center of the fountain in the courtyard. It was not a thing that Credence was familiar with, until he realized what that exact shape was that was lying on the ground. It was a wolf, although unlike any he might have seen before. Its claws seemed to be sharp thorns at their points, its fur almost seemed to be covered in moss, if not made of it itself. Its legs seemed to be made entirely of wood, and its ears seemed to be hidden behind wooden knots. This with all of its appearance, could only have been Onda's chosen. But Credence, that couldn't be right. It could only go up to his shin. It was very clearly a baby. How could this help him? However, some modicum of decorum he reminded himself was still necessary. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not mean for that to happen. I was just wanted me. And then he noticed that there was somebody else that he'd knocked over. It wasn't an animal though at least not like anything he'd heard or seen before. It seemed to be tall as an F, although it didn't seem to have any affinity, for it would have long changed into a manner of natural phenomenon long ago. Its ears were also of a different sort, not being long and pointy, but rounded down. 
had also seemed to be in pain right now by the door. Perhaps this was the Chosen. Didn't exactly look like any civilized races that he knew about. Why did you have to go right for the nose? He seemed to be wheezing as he held his nose. I didn't mean to. It's not like there's windows in the door. Usually it should be kept open all day anyway. The thing seemed to steal itself before wrenching its hand, causing a loud click to occur. It's fine, man, but you should at least apologize to Kojo. You clear sent him flying. He pointed towards the little wolf pushing itself onto its feet, trying to stop dizzying itself from the motion. Before it seemed to open its mouth. Don't worry, Dave. This is the one I was sent to meet. Credence, while all for civility of a good conversation, was in a bit of a stressful situation. So it could be understood as to why he decided to go about asking as directly as he could the following question. After all, it was proven that the Chosen was in fact a wolf pup, which seemed to be very much go against what a Chosen exactly was. Quick, one of your glasses! To Credence, it seemed to be the only thing that this Chosen would be good for. After all, if it had a unique ability, besides being part plant, it would explain the god's decision. The two both seemed startled a little bit, before both looked towards each other and back at him. I do not yet have a class besides the Chosen that was granted to me by my god, responded Kojo, as he stepped back up from the stairs towards the two. I have Arcanist, but I have the option for a second one I still haven't decided upon yet. At this, Credence's heart seemed to crack in twain. We are so royally scr- And then, something rushed out of the alleyway. There, in all his rock and glory, stood Faldor, looking as angry as he could have been, searching the area. He stooped his eyes when he came across Credence's. There you are! And I see you brought yourself some little friends. By the way, your distractions have been taken care of, so I would suggest not fighting me when I kill you. Since you two seem to be with him, the same warning goes to both of you as well, albeit a little less dire. I won't be eating you after I kill you two, after all. And without any more words being spoken, his feet seemed to become one with the ground as he shifted through the earth reaching the stairs in the blink of an eye. Almost as fast did Dave rush out in front of the assailant as the fist seemed to ram straight through the stomach, causing blood and viscera to stain the stone-laden streets. Valdor almost seemed surprised that it happened, but that did cause him to stop for but a moment. That moment was all it took for Kojo to realize exactly what had happened. No! He screamed as he watched his friend get impaled. In that split second, something seemed to snap within him. And for the first time in a long time, he finally began seeing red again. His moss rose up in tendrils as he launched himself towards the thing that was destroying his friend. His claws sought to find purchase as it tore away mounds of rock and earth. All the while, the moss on his back tried to grasp anything to tear apart, and it seemed to be working. Baldur shrieked in pain as his arm pulled out of the hole he'd punched into the stumbling Dave. The rock seemed to almost be pulled apart before the glow rang out from within, pulling any loose rocks towards him. His health seemed to gradually get better as he started absorbing the very streets that they were on. 
all until finally the statue was wrenched from the ground and pulled straight into him, the statue's face forming what used to be his own. You cannot stop the city yourself, not by wild scratching and biting. At this, he reached and tore Koju out of him, leaving behind roots that had been implanted into the crack of the boulders, trying to wedge them apart. He then threw the wolf high into the air and jumped after him, following him with a series of punches and kicks upon the tiny wolf pup, who seemed to be struggling to keep himself whole. Credence was, perhaps, in the most stress that he had been in for a while, and it seemed to be only growing. Then he remembered exactly what Class David said he had been, the exact same that he was. The question was what his level was could wait, but that did mean that he had a way to help the gushing man who seemed to be struggling on two feet. He had one last device he held for times of emergency, one that was meant to stop constant danger ticks like bleeding, poison, or corrosion. He had imagined that he would have been using it against a monster tamer hiding somewhere in the city, but it would definitely be better to help the currently dying man in front of him, as he wasn't too sure whether or not it would work for a wooden wolf. He reached into the pack on his back to bring out the disc and the glowing runic crystal embedded with it, before implanting it within Dave's hull. In moments, Dave seemed to regain his wits, and also, through some weird magic, his entire flesh, as it seemed to hold the disc in place, bore a way to better hold the man upright. What did you do to me? It's just the device meant to help stop constant damage ticks I cooked up. Whatever else that's happening, I, I don't know. Dave seemed to flex his fingers a bit as he heard the reply. Not long after, both contenders in the fight fell from the sky into the fountain, one groaning in pain, while the other steadily rebuilt itself using the rubble around it. Well, I got a hell of an MP boost, and I don't have to constantly cast regen on myself, so I guess that means I could do something rather impressive. Keep in mind, I might be out of commission for a while. At this, he seemed to steady himself before closing his eyes and breathing in cycles. Energy began to, somehow, flow into the man in front of Crescent's before he suddenly began coughing up blood and falling over, the disc dislodging itself from the cavity before the crystal grew dim. I hope that was enough to take him out. Dear merciful God, why didn't I listen to the coin? Be safe, little buddy, wheezed the pale, stricken Dave, as he finally collapsed into a huff on the floor, blood slowly oozing out. Credence kneeled down to inspect the man and prepared to give both of them and the wolf funeral rites, as he noticed something happening in the air, originating from the man himself. Credence wasn't a magic virtuoso by any means. He knew the basic show, but more often than not, he didn't exactly have a handle on how to perform any magical feats. Most people tended to just scrape an excess amount of mana that they produced from their shell to perform simple spells, like telekinesis or conjuring a mana weapon. Sure, most spells didn't last long, but it was what people could do without breaking themselves. And Credence could tell that this was a spell that couldn't have been performed without doing that. So he was beginning to question the sanity and the actual job class of his company. However, his attention was drawn away from that line of logic, by which way the spell had been directed, towards the Chosen that was lying in the ruined fountain. End of chapter. Chapter 34 
There are certain things that the reader must understand before continuing with this chapter. The following events are being retold exactly as they happened, although it isn't exactly normal for a history text to address the reader directly. This aside is an important distinction that must be understood to comprehend the magnitude of the occurrences detailed herein. The first thing that must be explained is what manna is and what it can and cannot do when used to perform magic. Manna, as most high enough classed by it knows, is the lifeblood of the mind. It is the essence in which creativity thrives, and the universe provides an outlet for it. There is only so much that a mind can hold before it threatens to overtake the sensibilities of the person holding the manna in their mind. So, much like a regularly maintained dam, which is designed so that water is released through designated channels, the mind which is storing manna must allow a regular relief of its building pressure, often through training the mind to do new tasks it hasn't had much experience with or has not done before at all. This is why many magic users who haven't been able to upgrade their tolerance or strengthen the dam both seek out new experiences and use mana for magic like it's going to disappear if they don't. Because, quite literally, it may do just that. Failure to release the pressure on the dam may result in a sudden burst of the hands the dam breaks, followed by a flood and then the drought as mana forms new channels elsewhere if the magic user even survives the burst. This is the main reason why not many beasts can perform magic. They lack the creativity and wisdom to be able to properly use multiple times, instead of just once like they usually do. If there happens to be a beast that is able to use magic like any other by its races, it is more often than not a singular occurrence, a unique variation of a species it is a part of instead of a representation of an entire species. That is why almost no one hears about beasts using magic, as most of those who can have hidden away from the world and reside solely in the domains of their ancestors. However, such a creature is a precious commodity to such a god, so it is natural that they are hoarded. However, there was in fact one beast that had not been forbidden from leaving the original domain, in fact, he was quite encouraged to do so. The wolf tree, which calls itself Kojo, was that singular creature. He could use mana like most beasts. He had no access to spells as such. He mostly relied on using his mana to change his physical structure, and the simple enhancements to his thinking abilities took up much of his available access to mana at the time. So when he came into contact with a spell and he heard the voice of the gods echo through his mind, it was understandable for his concentration to falter, especially given the content of the message from the voice of the gods. Somehow, in some way, he had been given a spell. As with most abilities, there are, of course, natural ways to get spells, by immersing oneself in the search for knowledge of it, or by finding tombs inscribed with descriptions of the magical permutations in which mana must be used for that specific effect to work. Both of these methods, of course, need a certain level of intelligence to properly understand how to read, search, or comprehend what the instructions actually mean. However, it is a mostly unspoken rule that one cannot simply push a spell into another being's mind. If one were to do so, according to common wisdom, 
it would almost certainly lead to that mind repeatedly performing that one task until all the mana was used from the body. For most, however, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mana, in essence, is just an application of a person's ability to imagine an outcome and enforce a will to make it happen. However, there is also one other aspect to it that most do not acknowledge, or at least do not openly discuss. Access to and use of mana could be considered a measure of sapience. The more mana that a being is able to control, the more that the mind that holds it can move in various ways. This is, more often than not, why beasts are treated as they are. Since they have no mana most of the time, they are not treated much like the bide, and why beasts with magic are sought out and hoarded. This, however, is also a double-edged blade. If a beast with magic was to lose all of their mana, they would be forced back into becoming a beast. This is why it is usually so dangerous for a spell to be forced upon a beast's mind, if it had one. However, the manner in which the spell had been gifted was strange, to say the least. It had been shared instead of forced upon him. That distinction is key. For a while, the intent of the action remained the same. The manner in which it was performed did not force the receiving mind to immediately trigger the effect and spend all of the manner down in a flood. Instead, it gave the recipient a choice as to whether or not to use the spell. Although sharing spells isn't that unusual of an occurrence in the grand history of the world, it should be noted as an exception here, simply because this was most definitely the grandest use of the perfected animal companion skill that had ever been done. No one before Dave had been able to push so much into the connection before. No one even knew that so much could be pushed upon the companion. Sure, people have conveyed purely physical skills and abilities through the connection before, but few have shared mental abilities, let alone fully conceived spells. Before now, not much was known about Dave. He was a mystery, even to the gods, since the day he had arrived. So, knowing the content of what was transferred to Kocha was both a blessing and a curse for any divine trying to find knowledge about him. His actions with Kocha certainly brought him to the attention of more than one divinity. However, somehow Dave had managed to, at one go, share, instead of force, Five Abilities, Skills, and Magical Capabilities. Read Magic, Level 9. Speed, Level 6. Recovery, Level Max. Regenerate, Level Max. Growth, Level Max. Altogether, any combination of these things within the list to an individual basically was a declaration that the individual will become a druid or a mage in training. Giving it to a beast, however, essentially makes that beast a force of nature. Giving these abilities to a beast which was already on its own path to become a force of nature. Well, that's essentially became a divine reincarnate. With that explanation concluded, reader, you would understand why the stone visage of Faldor twisted in pain almost as fast as he recognized that he was actually in pain. Or in front of him, seeming to draw strength from the water and earth that was a part of the fountain, stood a new Kojo. One that seemed to be more plant than wolf. His eyes were the only thing that had stayed in between his transformation. All else had changed. Roots grew from him and dove into the earth. Leaves grew to the sky, pulsing with blood. 
Vane snaked through his wooden trunks, which made up the core of his body. Wooden vines plugged up the hole in the fountain, drinking and draining the crystal clear water, and, even though Kojo had now grown into the earth itself, becoming immobile, the tendrils emerged from his form and struck forward with an unearthly snap, enwrapping the entire body of Valda. In that split second, Valdo concluded that there was only one of two ways that the situation could pan out. Either he tried to use his strength to break the wood binding him, which, concerningly, seemed to be getting stronger as time went on. Or he could go with the option which bypassed strength entirely. So once again he moved through the earth, away from the grasping vines. Unfortunately and oddly, he was stopped immediately. Amongst the dirt worms and various rocks within his vision, he saw that his pathway had been blocked by what he considered to be an inordinate amount of roots, and judging from the eyes that were opening upon them and the fact that they were focusing on him, their creature was able to see him. For the first time in a long while, Valdor was actually scared. Knowing he did not have much time, instead of wasting more time trying to escape the shell of roots, he raced through the earth towards the creature, hoping to get to the center of the sphere of roots that had formed. The roots surrounding him just seemed to be getting thicker and longer as time went on, roping inwards towards the earth, trying to grasp him. Valdor realized that he only had one chance to deal with this oaken foe. He had to cut off the connection between the trunk and the roots. That should buy him ample time to actually damage it enough that it would no longer be a thorn in his side while he dealt with credence. So, with an abundance of confidence, he pushed himself directly into the middle of Koja and reshaped his arm. Everything around him was either trying to squeeze the life out of him or tear him apart. Thorny roots tear at his arms and legs, while thick, grasping roots pulled at those same limbs apart. And it was being done with such a ferocity that Valdor could barely replace the substance before being torn asunder again. He only had one chance at dealing with this, one fleeting hope. He could not run away now. That option had closed to him once he saw those eyes on the roots making the spear. It could track him through the earth, and it seemed to be able to move through the earth even faster than when he searched through it. His only hope now was the one weakness that all plants had, that he could exploit. However, when he reached what seemed to be the center of it all, it was not there. Regardless of where he turned or where sections of the earth combed through, no matter which way he looked, it wasn't there. And with each passing moment, he was being further torn apart. Despite his appearance as a plant, Kojo did not have a main trunk, only a fibrous shell. There was nothing that could be cut and disconnected from the roots from the tree. With that realization, all hope fled from Falder, and with one final prayer to Belen, Falder was downgraded to dust. At some unspoken mark, Kojo's head burst open, releasing dust all onto the air before his form shed all extra growth that he'd undergone, his previous form bursting forth from the now caved-in chest. Throughout the exchange, Credence had only been given half his attention to the fight. To be fair, the fight was incredible when it was visible, and he was thoroughly astonished at what he could see. 
but because much of it was taking place underneath the cobblestones, and he had his hands full trying to stop the entire cavity within Dave's chest from bleeding out. It was somewhat understandable that he didn't exactly keep track of what was going on. So when Kojo, seemingly weakened from the exchange, stepped forth from the tree that he had become, and left behind something that, uh, while still alive, wasn't brimming with the life like it had before, Credence prepared hastily to enter battle. It was evident to him that Kojo had somehow lost the fight. The tree, which had used to be him, no longer had veins which pulsed with life, and while the leaves were still growing, they were no longer filled with blood. The blood that fell into the refill, clear water of the fountain. After staying alert for several seconds, while the growth further slowed and eventually stopped, the mass, now more properly resembling a tree, even with the empty eye sockets, and nothing else happening. Credence relaxed his preparation for imminent attack. Even so, Kojo had to interrupt Credence's intense focus. Is he okay? At that, the man shook his head and looked at the slightly bigger Chosen. What? Is Dave okay? With that prompt, Credence remembered he still had someone he had to check upon. And when he looked back at the prone member of the bide, he marveled. For somehow, his heart was still beating and his chest was slowly closing up. This was simply unnatural heaving capabilities, something which you can only recall monsters ever having. It seems to be that he will. He might just need a lot of rest for it to heal. At that, Kojo sighed and sat on the steps of the church. Good. If he had died without me paying back my debt, I would have... Kojo's words seemed to soften and almost go down to a whisper. Is there a place that he can rest? At this query, Kojo started. Yes, we have a room at the inn a little ways away. Credence nodded. Good. Well, I'll try to carry him there. Lead the way. And so their merry band had come together. Kojo prowled the streets, sniffing corners and looping around anyways. While Credence carried the man on his back and dragged along his rucksack. It was only after a couple feet that Credence realized something. How are you able to talk? Kojo turned around and stopped in the street. What do you mean? Well, um, aren't beasts meant to, um, not be able to do that? Kojo scoffed at the remark. All beasts are capable of speech. It's only a matter of how well we're able to move our tongues rather than the body language that you all seem incapable of reading. Credence looked at him curiously. So, uh, Honda had nothing to do with it. Kojo's face slackened from the stern glare before looking towards the ground. He might have. Aha! Then you weren't able to learn how to speak naturally. Kojo coughed a bit before turning and heading back down the road. Just because I wasn't able to figure out how you all exactly talk without help doesn't mean I'm not intelligent enough to. Kojo's voice faded into the background as both Credence and him touched upon points of rigorous discussion of the intelligence of beasts. Above the street, a small pile of dust gathers on a roof, and a single feminine voice speaks clearly, ringing if anyone had been around to hear it. I understand, but with that you are no longer useful to me. 
Silence seems to gather for a moment before she spoke once again into the air. Can you do what must be done with how you are? Good. Even with your title now handed to someone else, I am glad that at least you stay faithful. You will only need one more cobalt. After that, you will have what you desire. No, I cannot help like that. You will have to figure something out yourself. And with that, the one-sided conversation came to a halt. Wind rushed along the roof, and despite what should have occurred, the dust instead held itself together and moved as a small, coherent cloud, following steadily behind the receding pair. End of chapter Chapter 35 There are many truths in the world, even when not many people know about them. Many of these are rather benign. Like, for example, which tree produces the best-tasting fruit in the world, while others are a bit more difficult to fully comprehend. Just to give fair warning, the next few paragraphs will briefly dip into a specific secret truth, so that people who are given access to read this might understand why the person who is discussed herein is so deserving of being feared. There are clearly defined and known ways in which new gods are created. Either some old ones combine their energies to form a being personifying a new concept, or a new god appears in the world because of some focused mortal influence. However, one person giving power to a specific concept isn't quite enough for a god to be created. Others must convene and embrace the concept and consider it to be worth giving power to. As such, many gods are either mortal ascended because of the desire to introduce and embody the concept, or they are simply heralds for a concept brought into individual existence. However, before everything was made easier for mortals to live their lives in accordance with the system upheld by Justitia, gods were formed very differently. Back then, gods could be created for a much wider variety of reasons. More often than not, the first ones to come into existence were self-formed from the universal concepts and not mortal ones. Concepts like time, or heat. Some were even effect, or maybe even the cause, of affinities of the age. Nowadays, most of the old gods have dissolved to simply combined into newer ones, the concepts they embodied being forgotten, outdated, or repurposed. In some rare cases, the old gods split, simply because mortals have a different of opinion on the specific concept the god embodied. But both sides of the schism provide enough belief to create the schism in the god itself. That is why churches are so important to gods. Besides, of course, the other benefits such a deity receives from belief, the established church helps maintain a specific image of that god. There is an unspoken law regarding the conception of a god, however. Gods almost always have a duality. Now... It might not seem apparent as to why that exactly makes the secret such a harsh one. Most mortals who worship a god which exists, or which they believe should exist, don't really try and understand why the god of the opposite concept should exist. Sure, there are gods that naturally seem to oppose one another, but it isn't necessarily made obvious to most people that such a duality is by the world's design. The core of the idea, which most people miss, is that you can't simply have a single god as a concept without representing the counter-concept in some manner, propping it into existence. If that happened, the god would be unopposed in whatever goal that they may set out to do. 
and the universe strives for balance. Although the world does allow, on occasion, a situation where a god can be unopposed, this most often happens through agency, most especially in holy wars between opposing gods. If one god can smite the other, the winner may be allowed to function virtually unopposed for some period, until someone can either arise and claim a lost seat of power, or the world, which abhors a vacuum, simply forms a new one at whatever time it sees fit to do so. That is the most crucial part of the secret. The world can act on its own. Perhaps it's obeying laws that we simply do not have the time or patience to understand. However, even so, most should have been expecting this sort of thing to happen. Of course, even knowing that it should or would happen, the location where it happened was noble. However, even without the ability to predict, the creation of a new god would provide a sign. Only a handful of gods know what these signs might be, and while some are properly worried about the outcome, others simply think it isn't that big of a deal. They might be thinking, who cares if a god hasn't had a seat of power in forever? If it was important, the world would have already replaced the seat by now. They are, of course, also right in those assumptions. Most gods have critical roles within the world, such as the rising and setting of the sun, the movement of the moons, even the formation of new land. However, those gods often split, replaced or reformed within a few decades, based on the wax and wane of their followers. There are some that are more enduring, such as gods might include anything from the sound of mice feet against grain, to the billowing of curtains being overshadowed by a night sky. These are actions that could be caused by gods, but simply don't need a god to oversee such things when the world already takes care of those actions for them. And the would-be followers don't see the need to attribute the actions to a god. So when there has been an empty seat of power for such a long time that no one in memory, or even those that can see into the past, can remember it being filled, no one bats an eye. This, like much else in the world, is misunderstood, however. In this case, it is not that the seat was actually empty. It had been filled for some unknown amount of time with empty space. No one, however, recognized the difference between empty and filled with empty space. This lack had not made the difference until now. Now, however, it seemed that which willed the seat was finally to take action. When one looks back, there isn't any obvious change to that seat. Nothing radiated power, nor did anything seem to directly influence the world from it. No one could even guess when that seat stopped being actually empty. There was, however, one thing that might have been noticed, even though no one did. It only ever performed one action with the system, only one thing that could, eventually, be traced to that empty seat. It made a newcomer in the middle of a sea. The belief needed to make that newcomer was more enormous than mortal minds could ever hope to comprehend. However, despite being the most costly thing to bring into existence, the system made no mention of it. It was not recorded in any transaction log, and anything leading up to the creation of the newcomer was hidden from anything or anyone who might have been looking for it. However, it did happen, and because it happened, it would be recorded no matter what just not in the system proper. 
Even with access to records, though, the point of contact where the newcomer was brought into existence didn't show much. The sand on the bottom of the seafloor glistened amongst the glowing rocks that were scattered along in the darkness. Fish schools and flitted every which way while trying to find food, mate, or safety in as many forms as a fish could. Weeds were scattered amongst the rocks, swaying gently in the ocean current. Nothing seemed to be amiss. There was only one thing that was unusual in this idyllic scene at the ocean floor. As a cave suddenly came into existence when none was before. If one were to venture into the cave, one might consider it reminiscent of a throat, as the walls were lined with what looked like muscles and hairy tendrils. Like a throat, the cave seemed to breathe. It sucked in various things, objects and creatures occasionally being pulled into it before sloping to a stop, moving slightly outwards and then repeating. Unlike a throat, though, the cave did not seem to connect with any physical body. In fact, it looped around and opened up into an airy space, as at least one unlucky fish found out. The fish's eyes, unused to being dried and under that much pressure, swelled when they saw the water recede and left it dry and on rock. In the space, where it had never appeared, nor would, lay several things one might expect, and one strange occurrence. As one might expect, upon the now dry floor, the fish flopped about, gasping for the breath of the ocean waters while its form slowly began to deflate. Worms crawled and struggled upon the packed rocks, heaving to dive back into the safe recesses of the earth, some getting caught up in the fish's struggle as they became stuck to its scales. Yet also, there in the middle of the cavern, although the vision was not visible to the dying fish, was a bide, or at least something that had the shape of one. It had no skin, no hair, no scales upon its body. In the darkness of the cave, where no light could naturally exist, if one could see, one might spot the glistening and pupilless eyes. Without light, no one would be able to tell what color those eyes were, but one might be close if one said that it was a new color. Some combination of black and something else. Something that made black darker and almost endless. From that description, Whoever reading this might be under the impression that whatever was created in that cave was bleeding onto the floor. Its muscles would be exposed and its heart would be pounding in an almost stillness of the cave. But it had no heart. It had no flesh. It had no bones. It was simply something in a form of a bite and nothing else. And the first thing this thing that was in the form of a bite did when it was brought into this world was smile and begin to eat. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.